So that was fun, right? Woohoo! Amen. So, so we sang of uh, God's goodness and graciousness, right? And didn't Brian read a passage about the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases? That's a good passage. I love to talk about those things, but that's not what our passage is about. Uh, I don't think there are any songs that I'm aware of of a dog returning to his vomit, right? I mean, this is not fun stuff. This isn't the stuff that we like to emphasize, but it's the Word of God. You know, we got some good stuff in chapter 1 of 2 Peter. We'll get some more good stuff in chapter 3. And this, by definition, Word of God, good stuff, but... And there's not a lot of steadfast love and goodness and gracious. There's a lot of judgment. And that is, they're, they're both true. And so let's look at this passage today. Uh, it's not the easiest thing to talk about, but we're going we're gonna to tackle it. And uh, we're in the second half, as Ash just read, chapter 2 of Second Peter. Sorry, chapter, verse 10 sort of splits in between. So second half of verse 10, all the way to verse 22. And if you remember, uh, there's this contrast, like the contrast we talked about, the things we sang about and talked about before and what we're going to see in this passage. There's a contrast between chapter 1 and chapter 2 of 1 Peter. At the heart of chapter 1, Peter gives a positive message. It's meant to confirm a believer's call and election. He tells us that through the knowledge of God, through God's great and precious promises, these promises that are found in His Word, God, by His divine power, and and in its power, it's God's actually does something in the life of the believer. He gives us everything we need for life and godliness. And because of that, We can live a godly life. And only because of that, we can live a godly life. We can make every effort to supplement our faith with virtue and knowledge. This is chapter 1, verses 5 through 7. Virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. And when we do that, because the only way we can do that is through the power of God that He's given to us, our election, our call and election, our salvation is confirmed. So that's the heart of the positive message of chapter 1. Then in chapter 2, the tone changes. His message centers around some false teachers that have infiltrated the church. You know, a lot of the New Testament epistles are because there were false teachers teaching false things, and so the apostles wrote these letters to counter the false stuff that was being taught. Two weeks ago, we saw that these men who do not live godly lives. They do not trust in God's promises found in God's Word. Instead, they twist His Word in their own, uh, based on their own desires, bringing destructive heresies, uh, different things different, things wrong from what the apostles taught into the church, heresies that resulted in whatever they were teaching. And we'll do some more, a little bit of speculating on that today again. Heresies that whatever they were resulted in sensuality or sexual immorality among those who called themselves believers. Peter's main point in chapters 2, 1 through first part of 10 is that these false teachers 
and those enticed by them will in the end experience condemnation and destruction. The steadfast justice of God will be seen. He does in a negative way what chapter 1 did in a positive way. Namely, motivates us uh, by the stick, if you will. So chapter 1 is the carrot, chapter 2 is the stick, if you understand the analogy, the little carrot for the little donkey or the stick. So the carrot, chapter 1, the stick, still motivating us uh, to confirm our call and election, to live godly lives. Chapter 1 positively tells us what uh, life, both this life and the next, involve for those whose call and election is confirmed. That is, they become more like Christ, they, they uh, uh, make every effort to experience, to do, to live out these Christ-like qualities, and they will enter into the eternal kingdom of Christ in the next life. And chapter 2 tells us what life, both this life and the next, involves for false teachers and those who follow them, those who, whose call and election is not confirmed. That is, they do not become more like Christ in this life. Instead, they deny Him. They deny the Master who bought them. Jesus died on the cross for anyone who would receive Him, and they deny that. They despise His authority and reject His ways of virtue, self-control, love, etc., following their own destructive heresies that lead to sexual immorality Probably many other sins, but apparently the sexual sins were the, were the focal point there. In this life, their life in the, their, this life is characterized by sin, and next life will be characterized by eternal destruction. That's what we have learned thus far in chapter 2. Now, as we mentioned in the last message, chapter 2 doesn't go into detail about the content of these heresies, these destructive heresies that these false teachers were bringing. But it's very likely, just reading the context, reading what Peter's saying, that it involved a false gospel of freedom from the consequences of sin. A magnification, if you will, of the grace of God. You say, how can the grace of God be magnified uh, too much? Magnified too much? Isn't God's grace infinite? Well, in one sense, yes, and in another sense, no. We see this in Paul's defense of the gospel in Romans chapter 6. There were some in the church apparently saying, are, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Isn't, isn't the grace, the love and forgiveness of God magnified when we sin? Because more sin, more grace. More sin, more forgiveness. But Paul says, by no means. How can we who... He basically says, well, I'll get to that. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Basically, the, the, this kind of thinking that sin somehow makes abound grace, magnifies grace, the grace of God is utterly ridiculous. How can those who, through Christ's death on the cross, those who have died to sin, how is it possible that they would still live in it? Or to use Peter's words, how can those that have received everything uh, for life and godliness not make every effort to nourish their faith with the qualities of Christ? The implication 
that both Paul and Peter make is they can't. It's not possible. Those who are truly saved, and we're going to have to deal with that, what that means, cannot continue in a life of sin. I, I, I forgot the verse, but John says that exact thing in one of his epistles. Those who, uh, I'm going to paraphrase, live for Christ, cannot continue in sin. As Peter said in verse 11 of chapter 1, the elect will never fall. So 2 Peter, uh, thus far, has made it clear that there are those whose call and election are sure. Those who have died to sin, as Paul says, those who will never fall. Those who will ultimately enter the eternal kingdom of Christ. And there are those who deny the master who bought them. Those who continue to live in sin and will ultimately face eternal destruction. These are the two groups that Peter is dealing with. So the stakes are clear and they are uh, as high as possible. They're eternal. They're eternal death or eternal life. They're heaven and hell. And that takes us to our passage for today. Verses, second part of verse 10 to verse 22 of Second Peter chapter 2. These verses continue to focus on these false teachers. And they are to serve as a warning. So as we walk through them, I want us not only to see what they meant in Peter's day, but, but I want to apply some of, probably won't get to all of them, some of the principles we find to our lives in our day. And the first thing we find is a warning against there, the false teachers, iniquitous or sinful behavior. So if I use a word like iniquitous instead of sinful, you know the rest of them are going to start with I. Because I had to pull that one out, you know. But it's a good word, iniquitous, right? Again, in the first 10 verses, Peter focus, Peter's focus was on the destruction of these false teachers. And in describing their destruction, we're told some of the things they did. They brought destructive heresies uh, into the church, even denying the master who bought them. They led people into sensuality. They were greedy and used false words. They indulge, verse 10 says, the beginning of verse 10, in the lust of defiling passion, and they despise authority. Now, beginning in the second half of verse 10, Peter describes not just what they did, but who they were. He focuses on their nature, their sinful, iniquitous nature. Beginning in second half, verse 10, Peter writes, bold and willful. They do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Peter's point here, we're going to see what this means in a second, but don't forget, this is, the point is clear. Peter's point is they are reckless. They're foolhardy. Their, their, their boldness is foolishness. They're willful. They're arrogant. And the way he illustrates this is by saying that they blaspheme the glorious one. Blaspheme or to speak evil. They speak evil. Uh, of the glorious ones. Now, there's some debate, and it's, it's legitimate, about who these glorious ones are. Some believe that they're the fallen angels that he mentioned in verse 4. So, the context, he's talked about the angels that sinned, and so, in a sense, they could be the glorious ones. But I, it seems unlikely to me and to others that Peter would use the phrase glorious ones to refer to fallen angels. If you read through it, he uses it of other things. 
So I, I believe that the glorious ones literally glories the glories. It's kind of like the word glory that we use just in general, but it's the plural form. The glories which these false teachers blaspheme are the glories of God, the glories of Christ. They are speaking evil against the truths of God, against the promises of God, against who He is and who Christ is and what Christ did. So then in verse 11, when it says, Where are angels, not fallen angels, not angels that sin, but angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. It probably means that the angels don't blaspheme. They don't speak out against these false teachers even though the false teachers deserve it. The exalted angels submit to the authority of God as the one who passes judgment. But the false teachers despise all authority and blaspheme the glories of the holy God. So that's what I believe the interpretation is. But whatever it is, the point is their arrogance, their foolishness, their recklessness, And beginning in verse 12, Peter adds, But these, the false teachers, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction. They'll be destroyed in their... I mean, they're really going to be destroyed. Suffering wrong as the wages for their wrongdoing. So they're earning this destruction. They're going to get paid back for what they've done. Peter says, these arrogant false teachers are like animals. And I think there are two specific ways he points out. First, they are utterly ignorant of what they say. How many of your animals, have you met an animal that knows what they're saying? The picture really is of an animal doing something, not because they rationally understand what they're doing, but because they are creatures of instinct. It's part of the nature of birds to migrate, of spiders to spin webs, of salmon to swim upstream. And it's part of the iniquitous nature of these false teachers to speak false irrational words, to blaspheme, speak evil of God, whom they are actually ignorant of, to bring destructive heresies, not even knowing what they're talking about. So first, like animals, they follow their sinful nature, not understanding what they're saying even. And second, like animals who are born to be caught and destroyed, they will come to an end in judgment. All of their babbling will be silenced. God will deal with them. That's a a thing we uh, kind of emphasize a little bit on Thursday night, the sovereignty of God. I mean, we're we're praying, we're seeing the world in... in, uh, is in many ways being destroyed, but we have to always understand God is sovereign. God will, he will judge, and he will work all things together for good for those who trust in him. So for these guys, their end will come, and they will be silenced. So in verses 10 through 13, we've seen the arrogance, the ignorance, destruction of these false teachers. And I think a word to us let me give two words. First, because of the arrogant, because of the arrogant, not because of, beware of. Beware of the arrogant. Beware of the arrogant. Those who boldly and willfully speak out of their own ignorance. I think one of the clearest signs 
in the church or even in the world of a false teacher, someone peddling falsehoods, is their arrogance, their pride, their spiritual pride. They, they despise authority. They have an unwillingness to hear from, to listen to others. And they have a, a prideful surety in their own rightness, their own righteousness. So first, beware of Context Peter's writing in, false teachers in the church, beware of pastors, teachers, Christian writers, and elders, and Christians in general, who are arrogant and often ignorant, who try to maybe bully you with their words. They maybe be good at words, usually using lots of them, often going on and on, trying to convince you of how right you, they are and how wrong you are. Beware. And second word for us is obvious. Uh, don't you be spiritually arrogant yourself. Don't think you've got it all figured out. Don't think you're the standard and that others should learn uh, uh, from and follow you. We should all do well to heed Paul's admonition to the church in Corinth. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Humility is the character of a Christian, not arrogance. Peter then, beginning in the second half of verse 13, continues to describe the iniquitous nature of these false teachers. It's like he starts jabbing, boom, boom, boom. They're this, they're this, they're this. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. The arrogance of these men is seen in them, them doing in the day in front of everybody, no shame, what other sinners, maybe non-Christians even, sinners only do at nighttime. They're brazen about their sin because in their arrogance and ignorance, they justify sin with false words. They turn it around. What's wrong becomes right and what's right becomes wrong. Has anybody ever seen that? And... They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their own deceptions while they feast with you. What does it mean they're blots and blemishes? Have you ever had a blot or a blemish? I have. Okay, sorry. Both words in the Greek speak of, of, of being defective or disgraceful. You know, when if you get a blot or a blemish on your face, that kind of distorts your look, right? It's not good. It's defective. It's not supposed to be there and it's disgraceful. These arrogant false teachers are defective. There's something wrong, not with their face, but with their soul, which leads to disgraceful behavior. They revel in and they rejoice in deception. They're like snidely whiplash. Yeah, he's got that mustache. Uh, yeah, I can't do it. Never mind. You know what I'm talking about, right? He's just happy about being able to throw, what's her name? Penelope pit stop on the railroad tracks. I don't know. Okay. That was a long time ago. They're totally wrong, but instead of realizing and repenting, they rejoice in their ability to deceive. And who are they seeking to deceive? Peter says, all the while feasting with, it could just refer to the actual church, you know, the church got together for communion and they would have a meal, but I think it's also they're just hanging out with Christians. They're, they're with us. They're, they're in the midst. 
They're arrogant, defective, and disgraceful, but they're also deceptive. They continue to join in the church activities. They come to the all-church potlucks, and while there, they have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. While feasting with believers with sinful hearts and eyes filled with sexual fantasies, and they're insatiable. They can't get enough sin. It's who they are. And they entice unsteady souls. This tells us specifically what, that the false teachers target the unsteady. New converts, maybe. People who are struggling with their faith. They're like wolves in sheep clothing, sheep's clothing, seeking to devour the weakest of the sheep. And there's an admonition here for us as well, both individually and corporately. First, as individuals, we should seek to have steady souls. We don't want unsteady souls wavering, going to and fro. We should seek to know the truth, to know the gospel, the true gospel, to know the Word of God in its whole. Not just specific verses we pull out. We should seek to understand the sound historical doctrine of the church what was taught from the beginning by the apostles and what's been handed down through the centuries, that we may avoid being enticed by new, novel, destructive heresies. And then as a church, we should seek to teach and disciple new converts, to watch out for those who are struggling with their faith, helping them steady their soul, steady their ship, right? Come alongside, giving them a firm foundation in the Word of God. Let us aspire to be a church that loves one another enough to help one another be firmly established in our faith through the true knowledge of God found in the Word of God. Thus, we can avoid the deceptions of false teachers who try to isolate the unsteady, drawing them away from God, from the truth of God, drawing them into their lies. Peter continues in verse 14. They have hearts trained in greed. Notice the word train. This is an athletic word. As an athlete trains his heart and his body to get in shape for their sport, as Trevor works out so he can hit that ball, throw, right, Trevor? Okay, just Trevor the athlete there. These men are trained. They're in training, uh, but they work on their sport of greed. And apparently this causes Peter some serious angst. Out of nowhere, he just interjects, accursed children, you sons of biscuits. You know, he's just not very happy about these guys. These false teachers are masquerading as children of God, but they're not. They're false, and they will be accursed. They'll face a severe judge, the severe judgment of God for their greed. Now, Peter doesn't say how their greed manifests itself, but the analogy that follows of Balaam gives us a clue. Verse 15, forsaking the right way, they have gone astray, the false teachers. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with a human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. If you haven't read the story... It's in Numbers chapter 22. It's, it's one of the comedy stories of the Bible, if you will. 
We learn that after the Exodus, during the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, when the Israelites were uh, approaching the land of Moab, Balak, the king of Moab, uh, was afraid. He had heard rumors of what had happened in Egypt and beyond, what the, what the God of these children of Israel was doing to, to other peoples. So he sent, a prophet named ba- sent for a prophet named Balaam and offered him money to come and curse the Israelites. And Peter says, Balaam loved gain from wrongdoing, specifically gain from someone willing to pay for his prophetic services. So probably these false teachers were not only luring unsteady souls away into sexual immorality, but they were charging them for their special knowledge. You know, you have to pay this up front before we tell you uh, the way to go, the way to know God, or however they put it. Whatever they said, though, they were charging people for deceptive heresies. This greed is in direct contrast to what the New Testament teaches us about a Christian leader. In 1 Timothy 3.3, Paul specifically says that an overseer, an elder, a leader in the church, and, and thus all of us, is to not be a lover of money. Greed, money, wealth should never be a motivating factor for ministry of any kind. So beware of the the church, the pastor, the leader that overemphasizes finances, money. Yes, God has called us to give to our church, to give that we might do ministry, but there's no place for greed in the body of Christ. And there's no place for greed in our lives We're not to be greedy people, but generous people. As Paul wrote to the Corinthians, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Generosity, giving, not greed, should be part of our new nature in Christ. So Peter's warned us about these false teachers. This is who they are. Uh, This is a description of their iniquitous nature. They're arrogant, ignorant, deceptive, defective, disgraceful, adulterous, greedy, and more. We must stand firm against them. We must not follow them. We must not be like them. Because they're seeking to negatively influence the people of God. To drive a wedge, to cause difficulties, to draw people out to cause people to come away from the church, the gospel. So Peter then goes on to give a warning against their influence for evil. Not only do these false teachers have an iniquitous nature, but that nature can be seen in how they seek to influence the people of God for evil. In verse 17 we read, These, the arrogant, ignorant, deceptive, greedy, false teachers are waterless springs and mist driven by a storm. For them the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. This is uh, poetic language. It pictures the emptiness, this is the point, the emptiness of what these false teachers are selling. They have nothing good to offer, only evil. Think about it this way. You're alone in the desert longing for water to satisfy your thirst. Water, water, you know, you're, has anybody ever been super thirsty? 
Yeah, you don't know. I, the other, recently I watched an episode of Gunsmoke and Festus had been in the desert for three days with no water. He was thirsty. But then ahead of you, you see an oasis with trees and grass. You run and throw yourself down by the spring and it's bone dry. On the surface, these false teachers, they offer this oasis. They offer excitement and secret knowledge and freedom. But in reality, they're empty and barren. They offer you nothing but evil. They're like mists that seem to promise rain for the land, but are quickly blown away. And because of this false, empty, evil influence they seek to have, there is reserved for them a place of gloom and utter darkness. This is, speaks of their eternal fate. And this should say to us, we can't fall for empty, vain teaching and philosophies. We can't be influenced by words that might sound good, appealing. Oh, I like that. I like that where that will lead to me. Maybe it'll give me some health and some wealth. Maybe it'll give me what I want. At first they sound good, but there's no real substance, no grounding in the Word of God, and therefore no ultimate truth. John Piper says that good teaching should always be tethered or connected to the Word of God. How many played tetherball? That's the tethering idea, the, the, the line there, tethering it to the ball. Now, the teaching doesn't fly around like the tetherball. It's just that connection. We need to remain teaching. Solid teaching has to be connected, clearly connected to Scripture. But these false teachers are tethered to nothing but themselves, their own desires and whims, taking the Scripture, because that's something that the, the people knew about, and twisting it. And that's how we can discern between a false and a real teacher of God? Are they tethered to the Word of God? Do they produce springs of living water? Or are they tethered to their own thoughts and ideas, producing nothing but waterless springs? So be warned. Do not be influenced by mere excitement, titillating teaching, new things, different things that are untethered from Scripture. Because if you are then you too will end up with these false teachers, following them into the gloom and darkness. We must be people that through the knowledge of God and His Word become a diligently discerning people. If we know the Word, if we know the truth, we'll be set free from these kind of false teachers. Peter then continues, verses 18 and 19, for speaking... Loud, for speaking loud boasts of folly. This is that bold willfulness showing up again from verse 10. But now we see where it leads. They entice, so in their loud boasts and their foolishness, their ignorance, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh. They appeal to our flesh. Those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. Again, look at who they're focusing on. Those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. Okay, that's a weird way, I think, of saying it, but I didn't really look at the Greek much. But this seems to be referring, to, again, to new converts. They've just escaped their life of sinfulness. So this is how they were living 
probably with some sexual immorality thrown in there in that time. And they're barely escaping it. And these false teachers with their deceptive heresies come, come to them with empty promises of freedom. Freedom to continue in your old way of life. You know, you can have it both ways. You can be saved by grace through faith, and you can live in the same way you were. You can continue to live in that adulterous relationship. I think it's possible to get a pretty good look at how they taught. If we think about back in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 16. So 1 Peter, we're in 2 Peter, but I'm going to take us back to 1 Peter. Peter says, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. This is so crucial, what, what we're about to talk about, about this idea of freedom. So if you haven't been listening, pay attention here. The false teachers were right to promise freedom. The call to freedom in Christ is at the heart of the New Testament. It's at the heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But it's not a call to give free reign to your passions. For then you, you are really uh, a slave to corruption, a slave to sin. So the New Testament call to freedom must be understood clearly. It includes at least three important aspects. Let me, let me point those out. First, that Christ died to free us from the guilt and power of sin. Christ died to free us. Our freedom is from the guilt. We're, we're forgiven of our sin. And, we like that part, and though the power of sin, we are not free to sin, we are free from sin. We are freed from the, the necessity, if you will, to sin. Second, we are free from the law in the sense that we no longer have to strive to keep the law on our own strength. It's not that the law goes out the window. I mean, some of the law, the, the law that applied to Israel might. But the moral law continues on. But we're free. We don't have to strive to do to, to, to fulfill the law on our own. Christ fulfilled it already. And then third, because we have freely been given the Spirit of God who transforms our hearts. This is the thing that uh, we often forget. We think, okay, I come to Christ and, and now I have to live this way that Peter's talking about, Paul talks about. Well, Actually, when you come to Christ, really, God does a work in your life. He gives you the Holy Spirit, and He begins transforming you. And this should, I mean, it's work. Don't get me wrong. There's that flesh that's hanging on. But there's an actual transformation that takes place. We are new creatures in Christ. Therefore, we are now truly free, like never before, to live and rejoice in obedience to God. We are free to live for God. We're not free to live and do what we want, although we are, because, because of the Holy Spirit given to us, we want to live for God. That's the freedom. So to recap, New Testament freedom in Christ means we are free from the power of sin. We are free from striving to keep the law, because by the power of God's Spirit, we are free to live and rejoice in obedience to God. But everywhere this true gospel of freedom was preached, False teachers would distort it. And in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 16, which we'll come to in a couple weeks, but we're going to touch on it here. 
shows that the writings of the Apostle Paul were a major target of distortion. Speaking of Paul's teachings, Peter says, there are some things in them, Paul's teachings, that are hard to understand. Well, there are some things in Peter's teaching that are hard to understand too, but anyway. Which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. So that'll be fun to look at. Peter says Paul's Paul's writings are scriptures, but that's not the topic for today. We'll get to that later. The false teachers were taking the unsteady souls, the new converts, and teaching them how to use or to twist the letters of Paul, the verses of Paul, to justify their own uh, sexual freedom. Now, Paul knew that his teaching about freedom was open to this abuse, so he warned against it. For example, in Galatians 5.13, he says, For you were called to freedom, brothers, fundamental principle, freedom in Christ. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. That would be stupid. But through love, serve one another. You have freedom to serve one another, freedom to love one another, because you have the Spirit in you, and so you have the love of God in you. But the false teachers were doing just that. They were using this freedom in a different way, using their freedom as an opportunity to indulge their love for money, their love for praise, their love for sexual pleasure. They probably quoted uh, Galatians 5.1 with great power among the new converts and the unsteady souls. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Away with the enslaving rules that govern the life of the body. You're under the law. You're under grace. But they certainly forgot much of Paul's other teachings in Galatians as well as other places like Romans 8.13 where he writes, For if you live according to the flesh in your so-called freedom, if you will, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. You now have the freedom to put to death in Christ put to death the, the, the deeds of the body. Before Christ, you didn't have that freedom. Now you have freedom in Christ to put to death the deeds of the body. So Peter blasts the trumpet of warning. These false teachers are seeking to influence the church, twisting the scriptures to their own evil desires. Their promised freedom, however, was really a slavery to corruption. So we've been warned about the iniquitous nature and the evil influence of these false teachers, now we turn to our final warning, warning against their inevitable judgment. This is really the most crucial warning that Peter provides. He's already stated in chapter 1, both uh, stated it in chapter 1, but in positive terms. Remember verses 10 and 11, maybe the key verses in this book. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, remember the qualities that were back in verses 5 through 7, Christ-like qualities, we'll, we'll list them here in a little bit, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Do you see the implied warning? If you practice these qualities, you will never fall and you will enter into the eternal kingdom of Christ. Therefore, warning, if you don't practice these qualities, you will fall and you will not enter the eternal kingdom of Christ. Always remembering these qualities 
can only be practiced by those that God has given everything for life and godliness to. Okay? Now in chapter 2, Peter makes this warning explicit. He writes, For if after they... Now this they certainly refers to the false teachers, but, it, but if you look back at verse 19, Peter was just talking about those who became enslaved by their teachings. So the they is really anyone who's described by what follows. Okay, For if after they, who is they, those who have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. Okay. The warning is this. If you turn away from the holy commandment, which is what they'd been taught by the apostles, the gospel of Jesus Christ, sound doctrine, and you forsake the way of righteousness, you stop living as God calls you to, and by your actions you deny Christ, then you are not saved. And your condition is worse. Your judgment will be worse than before you ever knew the way. Okay? Peter states the very real possibility that by learning of Christ, some people begin in the Christian life. And by all outward appearances, they've escaped from the defilements of this world. Maybe they're going to church, reading their Bible, they're praying. They're no longer at least outwardly practicing obvious sin. But at some point... They turn away from the holy commandment. They turn away from the gospel, the, the true gospel, the word of God, the sound doctrine, and become entangled in sin again. They are, as Jesus described, described like the seeds that fell among the thorns. They are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they're choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. Now, I want to address two things from these verses. First, okay. notice the principle that the more you know of Christ and His way, the more severe your judgment will be for not trusting and obeying Him. Better never to have known the way, Peter says in verse 21. And this he certainly learned from Jesus, who in Matthew 11 said, "'Woe to you, Chorazon! Woe to you, Bethsaida!' These are cities that Jesus taught in, that Jesus did miracles in. The people in these cities knew about Jesus. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, these are cities mentioned in the Old Testament, the people of Tyre and Sidon didn't know much, if anything, about Jesus or God. They were unreached peoples, if you will. They belonged to Israel's enemies. They were prophesied against and ultimately conquered. But Jesus says, if they had witnessed these miracles, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you, citizens of Chorazon and Bethsaida, who saw me, who know me. The principle is, the more evidence you have for the reality of Christ, the more you know of the gospel the more severe your judgment for not repenting will be. As Jesus said in Luke, And the servant 
who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did not deserve uh, and did what deserved a beating. Hmm. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating, sorry, will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required, and from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. That's the principle. Peter warns that those who've been given much, if you forsake, if you've been given the Holy Commandment and then you forsake the Holy Commandment, after all you've learned and experienced, your judgment will be greater than those who never knew it who never received the Holy Commandment, who haven't heard of Jesus, the Word of God. Now, what that means in eternity, I'm not 100% sure. But God's Word seems to say that there will be a greater judgment, a greater destruction for those who've heard and in some way believed the gospel, but then rejected it and returned to their sinful ways, than those who never heard the gospel at all. But don't get me wrong. The issue is degrees of punishment. The issue is not heaven or hell. You don't go to heaven by not hearing the gospel. The person who's never heard the gospel will be judged for their sin. But again, it seems their judgment will be less, a lighter beating than those who've heard and rejected. And especially those who've heard, believed in some way, and then rejected. Now I say believed in some way, because of the second point I want to make about these verses. That is, Peter is not teaching that God's elect can lose their salvation. Peter is not teaching that God's elect can lose their salvation. He's most definitely teaching that church members can be lost. And people who make outward professions of faith, people who walk the aisle, people who say the prayer and even begin to clean up their lives, can turn away from Christ and be lost. But God's elect cannot, will not lose their salvation. Now, I say that for two reasons. First, because of what we find in verse 22, and second, what we find in many other scriptures. First, in verse 22, Peter explains uh, to us in a proverb that we should not be overly surprised by people leaving the faith and becoming entangled in their defilements again. Verse 22, what the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. I know it's gross, but dogs characteristically return to their vomit. I've seen it happen. It's not a pretty sight. And I've raised pigs. I've been a pig farmer. No. I have. I know you find that hard to believe. I've bathed pigs, getting them ready to show at the fair. So I know that no matter how clean you make a pig on the outside, it's still a pig. And when given a chance, it will return to the mud and roll around and all your work will be in vain. In other words, those who turn back from the Holy Commandment and return to their sin simply show that their inner nature has never been changed. They've always been a dog. They've always been a pig. They were never transformed by the Spirit into a a, a less gross or cleaner animal. I don't know what that would be. 
And this brings us to the second reason. I know Peter isn't talking about the elect losing their salvation, and this is the, the, the bigger one, because of what other scriptures say. It's important for us to understand that since all scripture is inspired by the same spirit, and all is the word of God, therefore there's a fundamental unity and harmony among its various parts. Okay, that's another one of those uh, talked several of those uh, rules of hermeneutics, rules of interpreting Scripture. And this is a rule just for Scripture. There are some rules that apply to all ancient texts. This one applies only to Scripture because only Scripture is inspired by God. Therefore, all of it must be true or none of it is true, really, ultimately. And we as students of the Bible must seek that unity and harmony. We cannot look at one passage without putting it in the context of the whole Bible. We saw this already in Galatians chapter 5, verses 1 and 13, and then Romans chapter 8, 13. We understand New Testament freedom in Christ based on all these passages and others, not just this one aspect, what we might think it means. And the same thing is true here. Even though at first reading it might seem that Peter is saying that a true Christian... Uh, someone who's elect, can turn away and even lose their faith. There are many, many passages that teach that is not the case. We're only going to look at one right now, but, but I've listed several others in the, if you have your notes, it's question five, it's the final question for the small groups. There are a bunch of verses there that just, if you're, if you're in a small group, hopefully you'll discuss those together. If you're not, you can look them up yourself homework. But for now, I think Peter is saying what John says very clearly in 1 John chapter 2, verse 19. Speaking of those who leave the faith, John writes, they went out from us. That's what, you know, they rejected the holy commandment, as Peter says, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. This is very clear. Speaking to the church, John writes, they left us, they left the faith, they turned from the holy commandment, they returned to their sin. Why? Because even though they seemed like they were one of us, they were not. They were not of us. They were never really one of us. Because if they had been, they would have never left. Like false teachers and false prophets, there are false Christians. So harmonizing 2 Peter, 1 John, Jesus' parable of the seed and the sower, I think we can say this. There's a kind of initial believing that people can experience in their lives through the knowledge of Jesus Christ. They hear the gospel. They hear of Christ. And they, they believe in some way. Maybe it's a belief in Jesus as a great example. I really like that Jesus guy. I saw a video once of interviewing some people in Japan, asking them about Jesus. Who is, who do you, what do you think about Jesus? Well, he's kind of like, this was an older video. I think it was in the 80s. He's kind of like Rocky. He just busts people up, you know. I like Jesus. Maybe you believe he taught what he taught and he did some great things and you want to be like him. Maybe it's a partial belief in Jesus. You believe Jesus died to save you but you do not believe you must submit to him as Lord. I think this is 
hitting at what they're getting at, these false teachers. And these or other uh, incomplete or false beliefs in Jesus may even involve major changes in a person's external actions. I want to be like Jesus, so I start doing these things. Love, what's that? What's the, the golden rule? Hmm. Do unto others as you would have them do unto yourself. You would think I would know that. <laughs> Pastor. Thanks, Dina. Anyway, uh, I'm turning 60 next month. That's, that's my excuse. Okay. Incomplete, false beliefs about Jesus can result in some kind of change. But the only way we can know for certain that someone has experienced real saving faith is if they persevere in faith until the end. Or said another way, perseverance till the end proves that your faith is genuine. We actually see this taught in a number of scriptures. In Matthew 10, 22, Jesus said, the one who endures to the end will be saved. Endurance doesn't save us. We're saved by grace through faith. But endurance proves our faith is genuine. Or as Hebrews puts it, For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Or as Paul writes to the Corinthians, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So the whole New Testament is in in agreement. There's harmony there. Salvation is by grace through faith alone. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, we, we all get that. But that faith, if genuine, must and will persevere. There is no salvation apart from persevering faith. And persevering faith always includes living, not a perfect life, but a life of growth in maturity. A life of growing in those Christ-like qualities we saw in chapter 1. Therefore, to abandon The life of growing in Christ shows that your faith is not... I mean, you can say what you want. I still believe, but I'm going to live like this. Well, your living like this shows that you don't really believe in the way God requires. You don't have genuine faith. You haven't received the Holy Spirit. And therefore, you're excluded from salvation. But this can never happen to God's elect. If it could... Back in chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, would be nonsense. Remember, Peter says, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If the elect could somehow be lost, there would be no way to confirm their election. Let's say I'm elect right now, but I'm not going to be tomorrow. Uh, I... Or, or, or in a year, 10 years, there's no way to have that any kind of confirmation. The point of verses 10 and 11 is that the elect will never fall, but will enter the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And therefore, we should be diligent and serious about confirming our election by practicing the qualities that Peter listed in chapter 1, verses 5 through 7, and by persevering until the end. So allow 2 Peter chapter 2 to serve as a warning 
A warning against being enticed by false teachers with their iniquitous natures and evil influence, who despite what they say, are not leading anyone to freedom, but instead leading to the slavery, leading to slavery in corruption. They are accursed children, and their judgment is coming. And the same judgment will fall on all who turn from the faith, who turn from the holy commandment like, like a dog returning to his vomit, prove their true nature by returning to the defilements of this world. Therefore, we prove our faith is genuine through perseverance until the end, through knowing and trusting in God and His power and His word and His promises. Again, chapter 1, verses 5 through 7, making every effort to confirm our calling and election by practicing the Christ-like qualities of virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and maybe the overarching character, love. Would you pray with me? Father God, thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for this warning. Lord, you, you through Peter, have laid it out. You've laid out uh, what it means to, to follow you, what it looks like to not follow you. Even, uh, even if the words say the same thing, Father, we can, we can see the life and what the life is producing, Father. I pray for myself, I pray for each person here, that we would be people who persevere to the end. That by your power, in your grace, you've given us everything we need for life and godliness, Father. I pray that we would now make every effort to confirm our call and election by living for you, by, by, by demonstrating, by experiencing, by seeking to have these Christ-like qualities in our life. For your sake, for your glory, in your name we pray. Amen. If you will stand with us, we will sing one final song.